Welcome to Reconstructed Faith, a podcast where we talk about truth you can build your life on. We hope to dive into the hard conversations of life and faith and seek out reasonable, substantive answers. My name is Colson Lechner, and I am joined by Chris Sherrod, Chris Legg, and Brent Starnes. This is Reconstructed Faith. Well, welcome back to the Reconstructed Faith podcast. My name is Colson Lechner, alongside my partners in crime, Chris Legg and Chris Sherrod. Bryn is uh, on a baby moon That's with her right. husband and her brother and sister, and so she's having a great time. We're looking forward to hearing from her uh, when she gets back, how that went. But um, in the that, meantime... By the way, that was not a term I knew until baby, y'all started throwing it baby around. Baby moon? Right. Yeah. yeah. This this is this is some must be some hip new thing that y'all know to do before you have babies, because... <laughs> you, you, I mean, smart. You, your life's—it's much more important than a honeymoon. In that, mo- most of the most of the you know, you get married and life mostly gets better, right? I mean, unless you're one of those few marriages that is really hard at the very beginning. Uh huh. But most of the time, it's like, hey, life is so much better. I'm so glad we went and took a break to prepare for this. Like, no, we did. Yeah. Babies, a, a total other story. I mean, they—they <laughs> right. they are just you know, like I say, they are just. Vampires. They're psychological vampires. They just suck the life. And I I love I love kids. I have five of them. And <laughs> dude, they will drain you out. So that's really yeah. smart. She's gonna go do that. Yeah. Has a little vacation before she has a baby. Yeah. And they're doing an adventure kind of one. I think they were flying to was it Salt Lake? And then they're gonna do like several natural uh, national parks. Stuff like that. Wow. So well, good for her. Yeah, really good. Um, but in the meantime, we are um talking more about the topic of genocide in the Bible as we talk through kind of the umbrella series of is the Bible immoral by today's standards. Yeah. Um, so if you haven't listened to the first one, uh, I would encourage you to do that. And we're kind of picking up um, from where we left off on that episode. And can I throw it over to you, Chris Legg? Yeah. Because we, you were not in that first episode, but you said that you've listened to it? I did. I did. Yeah. I, I love... That sounds terrible or or self-absorbed or something, but I actually, I like these podcasts. Even even if, even if the ones I'm in, I still miss stuff. And so it's so yeah. cool to listen to it and hear Chris's insider, yours or, or Bryn's and like, oh, somehow I missed that. I must've been thinking about what I was going to say next or something horribly narcissistic like that. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and so I'm, I, I really do, I really do like them and they're good for my faith too. To, it, honestly, even though I'm here getting to hear, listen to it later, but, uh, but especially the ones I miss, I love hearing and getting the thoughts about. And, yeah. um, it sounded like y'all really were doing, um, cause okay. So first I feel like guys were moving into kind of a, a new heading as we've been going through topic by topic. It feels to me like the most of our topics so far, slavery, racism, genocide, uh, sexism, uh, those things have mostly been us saying, is the Bible immoral by today's standards? No, that generally speaking, no, it's, it's not like if, if we were correctly applying the Bible, it would actually align really well with at least a lot of the thoughts and philosophies of today. Men and women are equal and all people are equal and, and all people have certain rights and, and slavery is, is, is wrong. The, the, the way slavery has been done here is, is bad and immoral, but, and what slavery is describing off in the Bible actually wouldn't be necessarily immoral, even by today's standards. Um, it might be different. The conditions might be different, but but the type of indentured servitude that was talked about would not necessarily even be immoral. It might be the moral thing to do to rescue your neighbor's kids 
because I didn't have enough to eat. And, and, but I feel like we're about to move into a few, like when we start talking about sex, um, and different aspects of sexual morality in today's world, where we're going to be saying, yes, that the morality of scripture and the morality of today's thought is not the same, that one or the other of them is immoral. And, and, uh, so that's going to be a challenging part of our conversation. And I feel like after listening to that, I was thinking through genocide, this is kind of a good transition for this because there is a sense in which, and, and even, <clears throat> I, I know we could spend the whole time debating whether or not what is commanded in the Bible fits the, de- the, the Oxford definition of genocide. Cause in many ways it, it does not, it's yeah. not, it's not intended to be ethnic. It's not intended to be a cultural destruction necessarily. It's not intended to wipe every, it, it's more of a driving out. It's warfare. It's, it's not over. We're killing you because you're Canaanites. It's we're killing you because you live in Canaan and we are taking Canaan from you. I'm not, again, I'm not minimizing that. Right. That's the whole point is we could go see not genocide. Next question. And we're it's kind of missed we're, the we're point. We're calling it what it is. Yeah. It's so is it genocide or not? I, d- I don't know for simplicity's sake, we can keep that as our topic. Um, but the handful of times when God instructs his people to wipe out a city, um, and we don't really have him wiping out, have him having them wipe out a culture, so to speak, although arguably, maybe you could say they were, um, they were driving it out of themselves and driving it away from themselves. Um, and so again, I mean, do we want to spend time, I I don't know, debating whether or not it should technically be genocide or not. I think what is clear is that it's troubling. <clears throat> and I think we'll end up saying, yeah, if a human did this, so I think we, I'm curious, Chris, I want to hear your thoughts on this. If it turned out that Joshua was not hearing from God, like if somehow we knew that, that Joshua was not hearing from God, Joshua was a military leader who was either lying and using God's voice as an excuse to wipe out Jericho, for example, or he thought he was hearing from God and he was just a loony, like, you know, he, he hearing he, voices. He was just, he, he was, yeah, he was, there was something, a, a mental illness going on there and he thought he was hearing from God and he wasn't. And the whole marching around Jericho thing is all a story told afterwards to explain, you know, what if, so if that's the case, I, I think we would say, then yes, wiping out Jericho would be morally wrong. Is that, yep. is that where you would go? <laughs> oh Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's the big issue that presupposes that God's alive and God's active and God's, you know, interacting and stuff. But yeah, it would be one of those things where you'd be like, that's clearly wrong. And it seems to go against the character of God, which I think is the big objection. You just go, why would your God, you're all about, you know, preserving life or love or things like that. So yeah, I think that's a great point. Okay. So we talked about this before. I think we mentioned it. Yeah. How in Genesis... After the flood um, was when God reinstituted, you know, just reminded like you you can't take can't kill each other. Man is made in the image of God, right? And it's wrong to take life. Right after God got done wiping out all these people, right? And so it's a reminder, like He has that prerogative, but we don't, right? So we can only kill. So that's one of the things we talked about. Is it is important to remember that killing is not inherently immoral or evil there are times when it is morally right to take a human life. Um, and we could debate when those were. There's lots of philosophy and, and, and 
moral conversations about self-defense or capital punishment or war. And mm-hmm. so are those, for example, times when it would be morally right? Or when you're like, uh, like the debate that goes on in Christianity, if you ran into a situation where and only to save the life of a pregnant woman, you would have to take the life of the child. And, and that would be, that is a, that is a fair moral and philosophical debate that we can have because there are times when it might be morally right to take a human life. Um, and I think that's given. So what the, the immoral taking of human life is what's not allowed murder, but for Christians, the moral taking of human life would be another way of saying when God instructs it either by law or by direct command. Um, and there's, I, I don't know, since the time of Jesus, at least, I don't know that we have any evidence that there's been a direct command for a human to take another human life. Yeah. Um, I don't think we have any evidence of that, any indication that we don't see that in the New Testament, unless you're going to count Peter. But Peter doesn't take the life of, uh, is it Ananias and Sapphira? Right. Um, They're just struck down. They are right? struck down. So Peter does not <laughs> yeah. take their life. God takes their life directly. I can't think of anyone from the time of Jesus, who God gives the instruction to a human to take their life. And so the era of God doing that either may be over, or we may just not be in an era like that, even if you do believe that era ever happened. So side note, um, I liked y'all really the focusing on the fact that it seems like God is targeting sin, not genetics. Um, that's a, I think that's a great point to make about genes- the concept of genocide in the Bible, is that it doesn't seem like... because God. God kills his own people when they sin. Um, he brings in other phrase, people yeah. to kill his people when they sin. I, did we use the phrase, it's justice, not genocide? Did we say that? I don't know, I but that's a good way of that. saying it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's the point, is it's not, I'm mad at these people and don't like them. It's more, this is justice against evil that's rampant. Yeah, yeah. I think we said that because I wrote it down. <clears throat> that's a good, that's a great way of it. And I also love that y'all pointed out how fascinating it is that God always provides a way of escape. Like there is, there is always an escape for the righteous and almost every story that we would say is like genocide, a cleansing of a town or something, a, an absolute destruction um, of a town, putting it fully to the sword. There's usually at least someone who makes it out alive right. because like of their righteousness. Rahab, yeah. Rahab's a great example and her family or Lot and his family. So yeah. um, of course, again, Lot, that was done directly by God. But, and I loved, I've taught for years on, I was laughing with y'all talking about Jonah He's such a great example of like when he's going to Nineveh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria and, and the Assyrians have been abusing the Israelites for generations and everybody, everybody hates the Assyrians. By the way, at that time in history, everyone, eventually it was a culmination of essentially the whole rest of the world went to war against Assyria and finally defeated them. Everybody hated them. And so for God to say, Hey, I'm about to, in 40 days, I'm about to wipe out their capital. um, But I need you to go warn them. Of like, course, what? Jonah would be like, uh, no, I'm not going to warn him. You made a promise. In 40 days, you're going to wipe them out. And the only thing that could make you not do that, because you're a God of your word, is if they repented. Yeah, I'm not going to go tell them. I want them gone. Right. And and I love that Jonah knows God well enough to know, yeah, you say you're going to wipe them out. But you know <laughs> what? You know what's true about you? If they repent and they turn around, I, listen, I know you well enough to know you're not going to do it. And I love that he knows God that well, but he doesn't know God well enough to know, I'll bet if I just head the opposite direction, God can't get me back in time. Because I think that, I think Jonah knows, by the way, he's going to get sent back to Nineveh. So he heads in the opposite direction, hoping he can get far enough before God stops and that God can't get him back to Nineveh before the 40 days is up. 
That's what I think is happening, by the way. And so, <laughs> interesting. And so, God gives him a a mode of transportation that's faster than any human transportation in the ocean, which is a big fish wow. that swims him back faster than than Jonah could imagine. Anyway, just a I love that whole story. But but you're right. I love that the God of the God who comes across as the most willing to wipe out a city in that moment, his prophets know him well enough to know, yeah, you know, you say that. That's It's why Abraham says, if I can find five righteous people in Sodom yep. and Gomorrah, will you not destroy it? And God's like, sure, for five? Yeah. But it turns out to be less than five. Okay, well, then get them out of the city because I'm going to wipe it out. Yep. Um, again, I like the idea he is targeting sin, not life, yep. not ethnicity. It is sin he's wiping out. I think that's a good way of seeing it. Yeah. And but, even with, if I just point out real quick with Lot, even when Lot hesitates, finally the angels grab him by the hand. Like they're like, oh my goodness. Okay. And they just <laughs> right, exactly. uh, yank him out of the city. It's like, why are you hesitating? We're about to destroy it. It's such a merciful act. Yes. Yeah. And I, I'm just trying to think through if I am a, a Christian deconstructing because of this, right. what, is, what is so disheartening about that? Because if, you know, if it is if it is humans doing it, then that should question our faith in humans. And but we've talked about that, right? Like we need to deconstruct. You read about faith. the sack of Nanking. You read about the destruction of Jerusalem in the Crusades. You read about and and humans are just horrible and evil. They're just they're just horrible and evil. And you read or you read about the Russian army taking cities, you know, last week in Ukraine, and you go, wow, humans are just disgusting and horrible and evil and twisted. That and and for some reason we're like we go okay, as all as as not okay as I am with that, I'm not laying that at the feet of God. Now, one that may be a mistake that we in today's world don't think about that, which y'all mentioned in the last podcast. Well, you understand all all deaths could be prevented by God. God is still sovereign even in these. Um, so maybe we should be a little more uncomfortable. But but anyway, and does that talk I think about you're right. our perception and our understanding of who God is? And, and what death is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think that's part of it is we see death because we're so afraid. We see death, our natural tendency is to see all death as bad. And therefore all death is something to be avoided. Um, although if you ask your 96 year old grandmother, like I had, like she did not see death as something to be avoided. It was 10 years overdue in her opinion. Like, why am I still here? I need to go. And, and so, but <clears throat> Chris, you made the point like, if you're coming from God's perspective. So again, if it's a human, we can't lay this at God's feet. And if I'm deconstructing my faith and I'm uncomfortable, and by the way, I am uncomfortable with the three main examples of these in the Bible. Like I'm uncomfortable with them. I don't like them. I wish they weren't there. So I have to reconstruct my faith in a way that allows for them, um, or I have to walk away. And I think there are really good ways to, to reconstruct faith around that. But again, if it was just Joshua or if it's just Samuel and Saul, then I don't, I don't have a problem because it wasn't God that did it. It was just, it was no, it should affect my faith no differently than Russians doing it or Japanese doing it or American soldiers doing it or, you know, whatever that that's, yep, that's war and humans are awful. And once they get involved in killing, sometimes they don't know when to stop. Um, so that's one. Uh, but when we're looking at the biblical accounts, it is shocking that there's a few places when God, commands them, his people, to utterly destroy the people of a city. Um, it is shocking. And it's shocking that the people carry it out, that, that, that Joshua doesn't say, no, I'm not, no, 
I mean, how do you, I would have to have some amazing level of proof that it was God before I would be willing to, but apparently they knew him and they were willing to, to do it. Why does this feel so bad? Um, and you mentioned, y'all mentioned, I think it matters that y'all mentioned the evil of the Canaanite people. If you don't, if you want to look up in Leviticus 18 or Genesis 15, that hundreds of years in advance, God is saying, I'm, I'm going to wipe these people out when, when they deserve it and not until. Um, so again, hundreds of years. The, it was an interesting thing and I can't remember all the specifics, but I know that uh, the Bible Project has hit on this topic before mm-hmm. and talking about how God was giving the people over to what they had already, um, like this was, death was already what they had ascribed to. This is the way that right. they were, like, because God knows their hearts and he knows their days, it's like their their demise was already going to happen. Right. And so almost speeding it up or something, giving them over to what they had already, what they had chosen for themselves. Hmm. So that's not, it doesn't make that any more comfortable. Yeah. It doesn't make it comfortable. So are there, is there anything that we can look up in the Bible just to like, are there any key passages that you want to talk about specifically right now? Well, those, those were, so you can look up Leviticus 18, 24 and 25. Okay. In fact, let's, we might as well look at them and Genesis 15, 16. I and of- Chris, Chris referenced this. I don't remember if y'all looked them up. I don't think so. But Chris referenced this in the last podcast. So it's, it's good to kind of look at it. But what's the Leviticus 18, 24, and 25 say? It says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these practices for the nations I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. The land has become defiled, so I am punishing it for its iniquity, and the land will vomit out its inhabitants. There you go. So the, the level of evil sin, iniquity, that's, that has infected the land and the way to clean, the only way to get the land clean is to get the evil people off of it. Um, that, that the language there in Leviticus is that the land itself is becoming infected by the evil of the people. Mm-hmm. And so God wants the evil of the people gone. Are, pe- are people disturbed by the by the flood as well? Do they consider that an act of God to wipe uh, what's, out? What's interesting is, is I think I think people are troubled by God's action, but I don't think people are as troubled, in my experience, by God doing it Himself, even with Sodom and Gomorrah, or with the flood, or with all the angel of the the angel of death who wipes out. All what is like 180,000 Assyrians or oh, gotcha. yeah, or the firstborns of like Egypt. Like, again, those are hard. And we, we talked about that with, with David Smalley. He was talking about like, yeah, he doesn't seem like a God of comfort to the mother of the, the Egyptian mother of her firstborn child being dead, which I agree with that. He probably did not seem very comforting to her in that moment. Um, but, uh, but, but honestly, Colson, my feel is that where people get the most angst, is the three situations where God instructs his people to wipe out everyone in a city. Mm-hmm. Um, that's most troubling to me. Yeah. Um, if God had done it himself, that's troubling. But I'm, but I'm able to kind of say, I mean, he's doing it. And I have to I figure out a way to, to be okay with the God who has that. But I'm able to accept that God has the right when I wrote the list of questions for myself is, does God, if he is God, have the right to punish evil? 
does God, if he is God, know how to punish evil and who to punish and how much punishment to dole out? Like that's part of being God. If you if you don't have those things, you're not God. If you do have the if you if you are God, you have those things. Um, and so there's we've and we've talked about this in our other headings, like the problem of and the problem of suffering and evil is we want to say there is no God because God has done these horrible things, therefore there is no God. Well, if there is no God, then God didn't do those horrible things, so it's no evidence whatsoever as to the existence of God. Um, if there is no God. And so, yeah, I get that that's, again, I'm, I'm not undermining at all, the, or not minimizing, I am undermining, I guess, but not minimizing the trouble that this creates in my heart. But at least for me, I will tell you, I am much more troubled with the three times that God says, I am sending you into a city, and I want everything dead. Animals, children, women, kings, soldiers, I want it all dead. And that is the, by far the most troubling of those three places for me when it comes to this question. Why is it more troubling that a person is carrying it out versus sending a flood or something like that? It's a good question. I think one is, it means if I had been alive then, I would have been the one running a child through with a sword. Yeah. And I don't, I can't fathom it. I can't, I can't imagine it. Um, because how does that, how is that person not morally responsible for having killed that child? How do we push that up to God and go, listen, God's the one who gave the instruction. He's the one who's morally responsible. And, and that feels worse to me. Um, I also think because that concept gets abused, has been abused so much throughout history. Hey, God told me to drown my children. Um, God told me to, you know, Molech told me to burn my children, to burn my children alive in the ovens, you know, I, I think it, it is the, or there's a line from Mein Kampf in which Hitler says, um, some version of it is, it is my calling before God to rid the world of the Jews. Like, I think the fact that it's been abused makes it even yeah. that much more difficult. Like, yeah, I think, I don't like the idea of a human saying that, of Joshua saying, we went and wiped in every man, woman, and child. Why would you do that? That's a horrible, evil, wicked thing to do. Well, God told us to do it. Like, okay. Well, God might have the right perspective for knowing whether to do it or not. So I'm, I'm in a different. I have now have to engage with it in a different way. Okay. Um, Genesis I'm not, 15. I'm, I'm not trying to. But I was more oh, just wanting I think to. You're I think you're exactly right. To... No, I, I think we all are on the spot, so yeah. to speak, for how we reconstruct our faith in such a way that that uh, that incorporates these. Yeah. Um, and I think it's. I think it is healthy. Again, as we said over and over again, healthy and right that it causes us to deconstruct something about our faith when we read these passages. Yeah. Um, Sherrod, do you have anything that you would add to that? No, I'm just listening to Green. This is all you're exactly right. It <laughs> it is painful. I I do think what we've already said though. I mean, what you just said, Chris, is the right way to think about it, and that is, if God is truly God, He knows best how to dole out, you know, divvy up the judgment and who deserves it. And is, yeah. Well, you and, referenced and that's the, why it's so hard for us. Yeah. You referenced that from God's perspective, the killing of the infants is, could easily be seen as rescuing the infants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I'm still uncomfortable with him doing that through the hand of a human. Like I'd rather right. God do it through a plague or, or a fireball or a, <laughs> something, but <laughs> It's, it's very uncomfortable to me. I also have to remember the thought of killing a chicken is a little uncomfortable to me, though. And these were people who killed 
their children had been wiped out by other people. Like, like this is something that was done in this era, is that you would at times wipe out a whole city. And this has always been the truth in human history. It's apparently still the truth sometimes in human history. I'm squeamish is a part of this. Um, I'm, I'm very squeamish about this. Um, I think I've, I've always been one of those who, when I watch a zombie movie or something, tries to imagine, would I be one of those who could shoot my friend who had been bitten by a zombie? Like, yeah. would I be able to pull that off? And, and, um, and okay, not to get sidetracked. Are either of you guys, guys who watched the walking dead, that series? I don't. Not really. Okay. So the early seasons, I'm going to take just a second. Cause I think this shows well in the, in the, the, some of the first season was some of the best television ever. Now it's not for everybody. It's horrific. So don't watch this. Most of you out there, please. But, but if there's, but there, I'm sure there's, there's something redemptive in I'm this. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they do this very well. There's a, a season, there's a part of the season where there's a child who has gone missing, like a four-year-old child, five-year-old child has gone missing. And they spend four, three or four episodes looking for her. It is one of some of the best television ever. And there's a scene at the end where they find that there's a family that's been keeping people who have died and turned into zombies and they've been keeping them in a barn. And, and like you, you find this and, and I mean, I was, uh, everyone who watches it that I've ever heard of is totally blindsided by it. And they, you know, some of the guys break open the barn and they've kind of gleefully, they're killing all these zombies because they're like, yeah, we found them and we're killing them all. And they're kind of freaking out. And it's almost like they're enjoying this now. And then at the very end, out comes this five-year-old little girl and she's a zombie now. She's shuffling out like a zombie. Ugh. And all of these tough guys who have been talking to the leader about, you need to be more aggressive or you need to not put up with this or you need to... And they all step back and they just watch her as she walks towards them. And none of them can move. And the leader, who is the one who you've now seen him two or three times in the season, he's very compassionate, whatever. And you've seen him shoot someone, like finish off a zombie that was someone who he loved but now who has turned to a zombie and he's willing to do it for their sake. And he's the only one of the whole group who has the courage to go up and put down this zombie. Now that was the little girl they've all been looking for for days. Wow. And, and it's a great touching moment. And, and everyone, like if you watch it, it's a great scene that shows his, his compassion is played out in being the one to put the bullet in the head of the zombie, even though it used to be the little girl they all loved and have all been missing. And it's, it's a chilling scene in the movie. I mean, it's, it's again, very rarely does, does TV do moments like that with any sophistication and compassion. And this they did. And as you were talking about in the podcast listening, I'm imagining the horror in some sense of God sending his people in to wipe people out, which is clearly not what he would want. The, but he's not willing to take away the freedom of the people in that city to sin against him and hate him. Like he's not willing to turn them into slaves or zombies that can't think. And so now there's, they've, they've chosen all this evil and they've infected their whole lives with this evil and this horror. And from God, not from mine, this is tough for me, like I'm saying, but from mm-hmm. God's perspective, God sending in his people essentially to set these infants and children free of this evil that has so infected them. Um, because in my theology, I see no reason not to think that God does not claim the souls of all little people, all children. Um, and so I think when you made that case... Like, I think there's something too. We are super not okay with somebody killing a child and it would be immoral for a human to do it. Yeah. Unless it was from the actual direct instruction, actually from God. And I'm not convinced that that ever would happen in today's world anymore after the cross. There would not be a need for it that I can understand after the cross. But 
I don't want to limit God completely, but I mean, and I think, so I think these are, you know, good points and good, you know, valid things to think through, obviously. How, how would y'all then, if somebody's really dealing with this in a way that's like, man, I don't know if, is this worth believing in? Is this a God that I want to believe in or whatever? How, how are you comforting them through this part of deconstruction? Thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I think what I go back to is I have to remember the multifaceted character of God that, because we could be talking just as much about the topic of hell, like we already did, like how could a loving God do that? And so I think the passage I was thinking up earlier when you were mentioning some stuff is in um, 2 Thessalonians 2, and it's talking more about end time stuff, the, the coming of the lawless one. Um, and it says, like, there's going to be all these counterfeit signs and miracles and stuff. And um, it says, and all this wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in mm. order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure and unrighteousness. So that alone right there, you just go, wait, what? God is making it where they will believe a lie? So th- there's a time, and this is what none of us know when that point is, where God does say that's enough. Like, right. yes, free will is an important thing. And I cannot remember when it was, and I might have mentioned it last week, but there's a time even in to one of the prophets where God said, even if Moses or Samuel were to stand here and try to appeal to me or pray to me, like I wouldn't listen to him, like send the people away. Wow. And Moses and Samuel are the are kind of the key, um, not negotiators, but intercessors for God's yeah. people so many times where God will change his mind. And God finally has a point where he's like, nope. Not even if Moses himself were to do this, I wouldn't change my mind. And it's the same thing there where these people were rejecting, wow. rejecting, rejecting long enough. And then God finally goes, that's it. I'm going to send you a delusion so that you will believe this lie. And so I think you have to recognize like, this is completely fair. Like you had a chance, you had a genuine opportunity. Right. And God is not obligated to just give you infinite number of, you know, whatever you want. And right. we just get upset that when he finally does step in, then it's, you know, we, we just don't like that, but it's like, we say people dying before their time, you know, when a kid dies or whatever, it's like, we're all going to die exactly when we're supposed to die. We just don't like when it was. And I think because like you said earlier, Chris, how we're so afraid of death that, you know, it just freaks us out anyways of, of what does it mean to die? And how could God take me before my time? But um, I think also in a defiant way, it's our last thing of saying, who does God think he is? Right. He can tell me when I'm going to die. And it's like, that's, that is who God is. Yeah. That's part of what it means to be God. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, it's, it's, I don't know if there is a way, the way to be comforted is the, is the comfort of the truth, not the comfort necessarily of good feelings about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, there is a comfort as hard as it is in knowing God doesn't owe us anything. Um, again, I don't, I may not like that. I've, I've said many times before, I do not need a God who does everything my way or does things just to make me comfortable. Yes, I want a God like that, but I don't need a God like that. In the same way, I didn't, I may have wanted parents who did that, but I did not need parents like that. 
Um, God doesn't, he determines everyone dies and God determines directly through action or inaction, all deaths. And God doesn't owe us anything. He hasn't cheated us. This is the insight that Job had. Um, the Lord gave, this is in Job one twenty one. the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, I don't have any rights to this life in the first place. And so God gave me this gift of life and it's his authority to take it back when he sees fit. And there is a comfort in knowing there is a God who is bigger than me, who is playing a bigger game than I understand, who is wiser and more just than me. Um, I was saying, working with the the children's and student ministry earlier today, like one of the scariest things for a child is to think they're the actually the ones in charge. They fight to be the ones in charge. And, but some of the most dysfunctional families are the ones where the child has actually gained dominance in the family. And, and the child is the one most damaged by that. They know they can't handle that. And, and yet they've been given that by their own demands and it's unhealthy. And I, it is, it is, it, listen, it is a rare command of God to do this. Uh, there are like three. Moses with the Midians in Numbers chapter 31. Moses with the king of Sihon in Deuteronomy chapter 2. And Saul with the Amaleks in 1 Samuel 15. And these, now, Paul Copen will make the argument that this is possibly a euphemism, that this language, I want you to kill every, I want every man, woman, child. Like when you look at, let me look up the, the um, for example, the 1 Samuel one which I get to teach in a few weeks. Yay. Nice. Um, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way they came out of Egypt. So again, it's judgment. This isn't genocide. This is judgment. I saw how they treated my people and I am sending you back to judge them, to, to give them a consequence. Now, it's been a long time. I mean, it's been several hundred years since this was done. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Paul Copen indicates that there's a chance, at least a reasonable chance, that this is actually a euphemism, meaning not literally kill everyone, but it's like wipe them out, kill them all. Um, and it doesn't mean literally kill them all. It means I want them gone. Like I want this area cleansed of them. I don't want to see them anymore. It's does, a, that, does that fall into the literary genre? It can into, okay. into this type of um, uh, language. It's a, and we have a lot of euphemisms about death as right, well right, nowadays. Right. We don't have a lot about wiping out a whole town because... That's not something that's done, but it was it was probably not all that uncommon then. Um, but, but you're saying the similar sentiment of we're saying this, but what we mean is this. Yes, it's that it is a euphemism. That if I say like, oh, our friend, he's you know he's passed away. We we lost we lost so and so, or he's you know, pushing whatever. up daisies. Yeah, so those are all really those are all euphemisms for me because I don't feel like saying dead because I'm right. I'm uncomfortable with that. Um, and so. Uh, it happens in counseling a lot. People are like, yeah, it's been like six months since we've had any intimacy. Like, okay, are you, do you mean like y'all don't know each other well, or do you mean sex? Because I think you mean sex. Uh, intimacy is not another word for it. Anyway, <laughs> like people use it as a euphemism. I don't want to say that word. No one says that word, but unless you're a therapist. Um, so it is possible that Copen is right, that this is a euphemism meant, I want them defeated, destroyed. 
not literally every single. Now, the problem with this, especially in the first Samuel one, is that in the next chapter, Saul is going to get into trouble because he kept the sheep alive. Mm-hmm. And so for it kept the sheep for himself. Again, there are ways to get around that. But I think we have to have room in our faith for the idea that God may have quite literally said, and what was obeyed was the indiscriminate killing of every man, woman, child, and infant and animal in this city, this specific city. So what we're stuck with is either God commanded it or didn't. If not, humans are immoral, and that explains it. If he did, we have to decide, is there room in our faith... Is it built in such a way to allow for God to have the authority and the perspective and the understanding of justice for each and every man, woman, child, and infant in that community to rightly and justly call for their execution? Um, and and there is in mine. Like, I, I can accept that there is a God because I honestly feel like God has to do that all the time. I think that's something that God does all the time is with every... I mean, we have three miscarriages. I think God knew rightly that that all three of those children, the best option for them um, was to die before they were born. And that doesn't make me feel happy about it. I feel like, like Job does. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't promise me this child. He didn't have to give me this child. His, his child, he could take the child. And, and I... I grieve over that, just like I grieve over imagining what it would have been like to be a Jewish soldier commanded to go into this city and kill everybody. But I don't think it undermine it has to undermine God's goodness or His righteousness. So we're back um, to a theology. That's right. Question of who do we believe yeah. God is? Yeah. And I'm thinking too. This is something I had never thought of. What would a people who are totally fine with how I'm just trying to think again, if my city's being invaded by these Israelites and they're going to kill us, but my whole culture is centered around the idea that our children are disposable anyways. Right. Like I I'm just yesterday. I offered my, you know, child to Molech. Like I just right. wonder if it was, I don't know how we would be horrified versus no, those are our children versus you're, you're a culture that's actually totally fine with killing your children. Anyhow, I don't know. I was just trying to think of yeah. in Romans 1 when it talks about he, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done, and it's all these terrible, terrible things, how, how depraved and calloused your heart and mind have to be, or you're perfectly fine with offering up your child with screams you know, on the altar. Not, this is not even like abortion where you're justifying it, like, well, I can't see it. It's like, no, you're actually, it's up there writhing in pain, screaming. So yeah. just how... Ending, ending that way of mentality and that way of thinking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the quick death that many of these children faced might have been an improvement over the, the death yeah. that their parents had in store for them. Yeah. That being said, I think what we're left is, is, is this. If God was human and only had human perspective, this would be immoral. Yeah. Um, if humans did this based on their own... When, sorry, when humans do this from their own perspective... It is immoral. For God to do it is not inherently immoral. Um, one, it would God is not God can dictate terms on morality, but I think I think the idea is that God has the right 
certainly. The authority, certainly. But what helps me is the perspective. God knew every one of those uh, Amalekite children better than their parents did. And I believed loved them more than their parents did and still chose this for them. Um, and I think he loved every member of the Amalekite culture more than they knew how to love themselves and still decided the destruction of the evil that they represented was necessary. And that's, that's hard. Um, I can imagine that in a small case scenario, like, yeah, that gangrenous arm has to come off. Um, I love your arm and I don't want you to lose your arm. And I, so I can imagine it in the small scale, it's harder for me to imagine the big scale, but I can imagine that there is a God who can see that and who can make that call. And, and this is a step. So I will tell everybody who's listening, there is an aspect of trust in this that is necessary. It, not everything can be rationalized in life. And this is one of them where it's not a blind faith. It's not an absurd faith or a ridiculous faith. It's a very rational thing to do to trust God, because if there is a God, then God knows every single person. Like we get offended by it and we're like, man, God had his people go wipe out all these people. And God's, and God's response would be, no, no, not these people, Susan and Allison and John and Larry. And I don't know what Amal- Amalekites named their children, probably not that, but, Could have. but, but whatever it was like, he's like, no, no, to you, there was, they were people to me. They were each individuals who I created in my image and, and yet still decided the right thing for this town was for it to be wiped out. Um, yep. And that's, that's hard to imagine. I got to tell you guys, so I had this conversation with our team. Um, like many churches, we have a safety team um, and the safety team is armed and trained and that kind of stuff. And one of the questions I had with them before was if you cannot love someone and draw a gun and shoot them, then you need to not be on the safety team because we don't have to shoot people, but we do have to love them. And so if you can't integrate those two concepts, then you're not allowed to be on this team. If you can't see that that might be the best choice for someone who I love. And you're referencing like if one of the people that is in our church or is that they love is doing something that is going to harm yeah. Yeah. Another child or something like that. Right. So if, you know, if you have a mass shooter, yeah, we, we don't have to shoot them, but we do have to love them. Yeah. Can you love someone? And so through going through that conversation, if you can't imagine a situation under which you could love someone and yet think death is the best choice for them, then, then we have a, an issue mm. that you have to wrestle through. Chris, uh, what percentage of your, counseling I, I mean in my brain i'm thinking it must be a lot are people wrestling with just wrong things that have been done to them like is it like 90 percent, or what would you who are dealing with injustices against them yeah like that's part of their issue it's like and then and then if you mean part of their issue i don't know how it wouldn't be 100 percent for all of us but if right. you mean that's their like their main the presenting main... issue, that's still pretty high. Okay. Um like that's that's uh yeah. Because it's still why would God allow this to happen? It's just it's the same. I hate to say it's like the same issue you've already covered, but it still goes back to you like, why would God allow my daughter to have cancer? Why would God allow that right. accident to kill that person? Why would God allow someone's mental state to go so bad that they, you know, all this stuff where it's like so many of these issues are going to come back to 
why would God allow? Right. And we're, we're back to the sovereignty of God that he, he knows what he's doing. And I was even thinking of the, I think the verse that I referenced, I might've mentioned earlier, but in acts um, 13, where it says for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. Right. There's another uh, euphemism for death. Yeah. Um, fell asleep. But the point is, David died exactly when he had served the purpose of God in his generation. Well, this is, this is, I think, uh, a step towards our next process as we're processing this. Not an easy one, but at the same time, I mean, I think there is a way, obviously, that you can embrace this honestly and still accept that God is God and he has spoken and he has the authority and the right loving attitude to know when and how this would be called for. And clearly it's extremely rare. It's not done often. He Even he doesn't think it's a common thing that needs to happen very often, but there's a handful of times when apparently he thinks this is the next step. This is what has to happen. And, and I can wrap my brain around that and be okay with that. But there is a sense in which if he was God, if he wasn't God, this would be immoral. So I think this is a good step towards our next conversations, which we'll, we're going to step into what the Bible calls sexual sins and our culture, our culture is going to have a problem, for sure. Um, we're going to have to. There will be there will be some decisions to make as to whose definition of morality we're, we're, we accept. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reconstructed Faith. If you enjoyed what you heard or were challenged, please leave us a review. It'll help other people find us. If you have questions or a topic you'd like to hear discussed, shoot me an email at info at southspring.org. Reconstructed Faith is a resource of South Spring Baptist Church. Remember, don't give up, trust God, search for answers.